0: good morning. Before we uh, look to the text, I'm going to pray here in a moment. We're going to look to the text. Before we do that, let me just reiterate the announcement that CJ made just moments ago about tonight's annual meeting. I really do invite you all out to this. So the annual meeting is an opportunity for those who are covenant members of Gospel Life Church to vote on important matters. The voting item tonight continues to be what the voting item has been every year up to this point, which is the budget so we have our annual budget to approve if you're a covenant member you'll be able to vote on the budget but i'm going to be giving an annual report a lead pastor report and in it i honestly like even as i've read it this week i've had the opportunity just to see what are the clear and ever-present mercies of the lord over the last year and a half to gospel life church you know and i'm excited to have the chance to share that with you along with some of the things that we have to talk about as a church in in terms of what things might look like moving forward. So this is a chance for everyone, even if you're not a Covenant member, to come and hear about some of those realities. Um, and we invite you out to that uh, important time. CJ and Maria will be given a presentation on the budget, and we'll have an opportunity to even hear about how does Gospel Life Church spend our money? How do we envision spending our budget over the course of this coming year? We'll have a chance to pray. We'll do a general Q&A as well. We'll start the the night with a couple of worship songs, too, and some prayer. So um, come out for for a night of worship, prayer, and to hear more about um, both the year behind us and, and what things are looking like moving forward. Uh, with that said, let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we ask for your help as we open the text this morning. We come to you as those who so often have our minds and hearts falling out of tune with your word, falling out of tune with with your heart and uh, inclining back toward the heart of the world around us, or the culture around us. We pray, God, would you... Would you make it so that our hearts are, uh, this morning, repenting, that they're confronted with sin, that there's conviction and repentance and transformation, that there continues to be victory over sin. We pray that you do that, Lord, by showing us Christ in the text this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So open with me, if you haven't already, to Genesis 47, and as you do it. Let me um, just reflect on the reality that here we are in Genesis 47, right? So, including this Sunday, we have four chapters left in Genesis this morning, and then three left. We'll be finishing on July 18th with this journey that we started in the fall of 2019. So that's been quite a journey, and I'm I'm excited for how uh, the Lord continues to shape us through this series. And as we... Set our eyes now on chapter 47. I want us to allow it, to allow them to bounce around on the text in a few different places as we get started. So set your eyes first with me on chapter 47, verse 15. Find verse 15. And take a look at this expression about midway through. Why should we die before your eyes? Okay, now skip down to verse 19. And notice the exact same question asked right at the beginning of that chapter. Why should we die before your eyes? Followed in that same verse, keep going in 19, and give us seed that we may live and not die. And now, skip your eyes down again to verse 29. Verse 29, and just read these words. And when the time came that Israel must die. Expressions like that have a certain weight that we don't want to just let pass over us as we read the text. When the time came, think about this sentence, think about what it expresses, this little phrase, when the time came that Israel must die. Life and death, right from the outset of Genesis in the garden, We have this focus on life and death that stretches out across different narratives in various ways. You know, there's a thematic concern that the author has across the book to both address matters of life and death and the way that God interacts with life and death. But we see that theme revived here in these closing chapters in the Joseph narratives as Joseph sold into slavery, rises to power in Egypt, a famine sweeps across the land. And do you remember what Jacob tells his sons when they're experiencing this famine? He says, go down and buy grain for us there that we might live and not die. And then later on, when Jacob, they come back, right? The boys come back. Simeon's imprisoned. And uh, Judah's pleading. With J- Jacob's not going to let give them Benjamin and let them go back to Egypt. And Judah's pleading with them. Let, let us go. Do you remember what Judah says? Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. And then here in Genesis 47, we see the people of Egypt coming before Joseph and saying, Why should we die before your eyes, both us, both we and our land? Give us seed that we may live and not die. So there's this revived concern of the theme of life and death in these closing chapters as they continue to narrow us in on this answer to the question, how does one find true life? Right? Where does one find true life? Clearly, Genesis addresses the problem of death, like where death comes from, the origins of death. But that prompts the question in the reader, where do we find life then? How do we reattain life? In whom do we find life? And that's a question that people continue to have in every age. You know, like, not to revisit this too often, but we're sitting in this moment now. You know, like, if there's one thing that 2020 into 2021 has taught us, and I realize that we've talked through this now ad nauseum, but it's that people continue to be very, very concerned with life and death. And it's an understandable concern. In the midst of a global pandemic, especially if you're coming from a worldview commitment that says that this life is all there is, every action on your part will enhance the reality of your concern related to avoiding death. That's kind of the end game, is avoiding death. And so we shouldn't be surprised that even before the pandemic, we've been working toward having our Garden of Eden and Tower of Babel, our our, our tree of the knowledge of good and evil and Tower of Babel moments. Wanting to be in control of something that only God controls. Wanting to seek true wisdom outside of him. Saying, right along with Satan in Genesis 3, agreeing with him when he says, you will surely not die. And trying to find access to life apart from him. So in an interview with Fox News in 2018, this is a year before the pandemic. And by the way, I think some people wonder sometimes, why, you know, why specifically in a pandemic that was not very deadly for younger people. Why were so many younger people so frightened and scared? Pastorally, I think this is one of the reasons. So hear me out. It's extreme, but I do think that this has spread across the culture. In an interview with Fox News, Dr. Ian Pearson, this is 2018, an esteemed geneticist and futurologist, Anyone know what a futurologist is, by the way? Um, Is it someone who predicted that the Cubs would win the World Series in 2016? Because if so, you're looking at a futurologist up here. Anyway, Dr. Pearson says this. He says, if you're under 40 reading this article, you're probably not going to die unless you get a nasty disease. You hear what he says? If you're under 40 reading this article, you're probably not going to die. Ever. Ever. Unless you get a nasty disease. He goes on to explain that he believes humans to be very close to achieving mortality, immortality, that we might live and not die. He explains that there are a number of different ways that this could happen, a number of different ways that we could live forever, as long as we can make it to the year 2050. And you know, you might think this is an extreme example, but I'm telling you, this way of thinking, this thought process is increasingly becoming mainstream. There's a number of different ways that we could live forever as long as we could make it, you guys, to 2050. So, do whatever you can to make it to 2050 is essentially his advice. Because by that time, we'll finally have the technology to avoid death. Whether it be renewing our body parts and kind of reversing the aging process of the cells, the technology will be in place for that. Or living in an android body if your human body is beyond fixing or just uploading your mind to a virtual cloud and being able to jump around to various virtual paradises and living there forever. These are options that he gives as an esteemed geneticist who, who oversees a project that people in Silicon Valley and business leaders from all over the U.S. and around the world pour millions of dollars of their resources into. So he gives these options and then he closes with these words. He says, most of your readers are probably going to live forever. Most of your readers are probably going to live forever, I would say. But someone talking this way who claims to be a futurologist or claiming that this represents something that will happen in the future probably shouldn't quit their day job and would be at the very least much better off changing the subject matter of their research. And the reason I would say this just on a, just on a surface level without going too deep is that, guys, people have been talking like this for hundreds of years. Throughout human history, we're always letting ourselves think that we're just around the corner from some breakthrough in technology that will enable us to live forever, right, to achieve immortality. We cry out as a people, let us hang on for just a little bit longer, just about 30 or 40 more years that we may live or not die. But going below the surface, we can tell you why that's, why that's something that's repeated and why that always fails make two observations. Number one, quite simply, there is no way to avoid death. Not the way that Dr. Pearson means anyway. Dr. Pearson will one day die. You know, as much as I hate to disagree with a fellow futurologist, every single reader of of that interview will also die. You know, outside of Jesus returning to make all things new at some point in our lifetime, which is always certainly a possibility. We live with an expectation that drives us into mission that Jesus could return at any moment. Outside of that, I personally guarantee a 100% death rate for everyone reading that article. The reason is because, ironically, it's that way of thinking, it's that way of talking, that brought death into the world to begin with. Like, the way that Dr. Pearson is talking is what killed us. Deciding that we knew better than God and that we could do a better job at God than being God. Like, when we, along with Adam in Genesis 3, attempted to, as Carson says, de-God him. Attempting to dethrone him. Attempting to put ourselves on the throne. Somehow believing that our wisdom is more wise than the wisdom of the triune God. This is actually the reason that we have death. And this is also the reason that people are willing to spend every second of their professional life, all of their personal resources, just trying to figure this problem out. If this life is all there is, of course they are. Nobody wants to die and no longer exist. They agree that if there's... They agree, listen, there's something about life that's unique, that's precious. There's something about you, something about me, something about us, who we are, that's unique. Precious, we don't want to lose it. And so it becomes the most unique and valuable thing for people, valuable thing for people. So they try to protect it at all costs. They try to extend it beyond all barriers. But ever since Genesis 3, throughout human history, we've learned two things. We will do our best to avoid death. And death will come for everyone. Okay? Okay? And Genesis informs us that the reason that's the case is because everyone is deserving of death. We'll get to that in a bit. Everyone's deserving of death. It's the judgment of the Lord, but also God's in control of it. He's in control of the number of your days. It's not something that you control. It's under his control. So second, so God's in control of it. But second, we see how God deals, especially in Genesis, with matters of life and death. Listen to me, while everyone is deserving of death, God doesn't simply wipe out Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Following their betrayal of him, he doesn't just judgment, death, and killing you. In fact, quite the opposite. In the courtroom drama of Genesis 3, God definitely gives a guilty verdict. He hands down a sentencing of judgment. It includes the eventual death of Adam Adam and Eve, but he grants them a hope. He preserves life. And he grants them hope. As we've repeatedly mentioned now, probably 44 chapters in a row since that time in Genesis 3, God tells them that a promised seed will come from their own line who one day will crush the head of the serpent, stamp out sin, suffering, and death once for all. And so Cain and Abel are born. There's optimism on the part of the reader. Could this be the, uh, nope. Uh, Cain kills Abel. Seth? Seth, could this be it? There's optimism on the part of the reader. There's certainly optimism on the part of Eve, even in the text. Certainly Seth's line, even if Seth isn't the one, Seth's line won't be like the cursed line of Cain, right? Well, even Seth's line continues to grow increasingly wicked to the point where God sends a flood on all humanity. All humanity. Wait, Jeremy, I thought you said, I thought you said that God didn't just wipe out humanity after sin. Well, he didn't. He preserved a remnant that he declared righteous, that this future hope that he gave us right after sin might be preserved. And we saw together that even in the way the author records, do you guys remember? Even in the way the author records these activities of God's judgment, for instance, in the flood, the emphasis was more on preserving life than on handing down death and judgment. So like in Genesis 6 through 8, there were no first-hand accounts. There weren't any first-hand narrative accounts of people dying in the flood. All of the first-hand, first first, uh, narrative accounts were people on the ark. Same is true in Sodom. There were no first-hand accounts of deaths in Sodom. The first-hand narrative accounts... We're Lot's family being rescued from Sodom. That doesn't mean that death and judgment aren't somehow there, that it's not a theme in Genesis, and that it's not to be taken seriously. But rather it means that the primary focus of the author, and, and actually it shows us a glimpse of God's heart, is to, is to give us this glimpse of God's salvation in the midst of judgment. God's preservation of life in the midst of death. That though we deserve death, God preserves life and he preserves future hope. God's at work in the narrative that we might live and not die. That's what he's doing, that we may live and not die. And we see that in Genesis 47 in three different ways, okay? Similar to last week, we see that through the events of these narratives that I think oftentimes are really hard for the first-time reader to understand. At first, as we're going through it, it's like, why is all this stuff happening to Joseph? But through those events, God is at work preserving life for Israel preserving life for Egypt, and preserving life for everyone who puts their trust in where this narrative ultimately points. So for those of you who like outlines, that's actually, you know, if you're taking notes, it's actually the structure of Genesis 47. Okay, three different ways that we see in 47 how God was at work throughout the Joseph narratives. He was at work in the narrative ensuring that Israel may live and not die, making good on his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's at work in the narrative, ensuring that Egypt may live and not die, also making good on promises to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And he's at work in the narrative, pointing forward to the hope that even after death, we might live. I'm going to repeat all of those at least a couple of times. But let's start. By first turning our attention to the reality that God is at work in the narrative, ensuring that Israel may live and not die. This happens in verses 1 through 12, but let's just read verses 1 through 4 to get the context and get our footing in the, in the text a little bit. So look with, with me at verse 1. So Joseph went to, went to inn and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess... Have come from the land of Canaan. They're now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So if you remember from last week, Just do a real quick review because it's important to see how this, the front end of 47 functions. The Lord calls to Jacob and he instructs him to go down to Egypt despite Jacob's initial hesitancy to do that. And his hesitancy makes sense because here Jacob is in this place where the Lord had called Abraham in chapter 12 when he told him to leave the land of his fathers and go to this land that I will show you. Right? And so. Abraham goes by faith to this land of promise. And now Jacob's hesitant, right? His, his uh, son Joseph is in Egypt. He longs to see him. But should he really go down? Even though there's famine in the land, should he really go down? He has this potential sense of betrayal and failure. Isn't this where God told us to go? Isn't this where God called us? Isn't this where he told my ancestors to go? There's a sense of conscience here because not only did God tell his ancestors to go to this land of Canaan, but he told his ancestors not to go to Egypt. He told his own father, do not go down to Egypt. So by leaving the promised land, wasn't Jacob leaving the place that he was called, abandoning his duties, shirking his responsibilities? No. Because God was in control of all this. It's sort of like, Jacob, do you really, do you really still think you're in control of where you, end, where you land here? So by leaving the promised land, he demonstrates that he surrenders control, right? And he gives control over to God rather than do not go down to Egypt as he had instructed Isaac. God tells Jacob now to alleviate those fears. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. So just like Abraham gathered up all of his family and livestock and all that he owned to go to the land of Canaan by faith because God had commanded him to go there, Now, Jacob gathers up all of his family and livestock and all that he owns at the end of Genesis to leave Canaan and go to Egypt because God is sovereign over all of it. And Judah, so Judah leads the family at the end of chapter 46. He leads the family into this place called Goshen on the outer edge of the empire. And he leads them there, and it's an ideal, it's just the ideal place, ideal pasture. Not like Canaan, but a place where they can thrive. And so Joseph develops a wise plan at the end of the chapter last week so that his family can stay in this place that, that is so ideal. So he tells them, if you remember, at the end of 47, he says, when Pharaoh asks what your occupation is, tell them that you're shepherds. And if, you're, if you want to know more about what that meant, listen to last week's sermon. But uh, essentially, he's saying Egyptians would keep shepherds at arm's length They would have no trouble telling them to settle out on the fringes in a place like Goshen rather than in a more central location. And so here in verses 1 through 4 of 47, they do the plan, right? They go before Pharaoh. They do as Joseph instructed. And now the question is, how will Pharaoh respond to it? Right? Kind of, Everyone's kind of holding their breath. Starting in verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my lost livestock. What Joseph seemed to have been anticipating is something like a consolation. You know, like, well, I suppose if if your shepherd family has to come here and dwell in our land, they can stay in Goshen, you know. It's far enough away. But what actually happens shows the fulfillment of what God told Jacob in the last chapter. Right? When he told them, I'm going to go down to Egypt with you. I will be with you. In the same way that it was with Joseph. He said, I'm going to go with you. uh, Because Pharaoh's response is even more generous than Joseph anticipated. Not only does he grant the request and allow him to settle in Goshen. But he says, take the best of it. Take the best of the land. And not only that, but I'm going to give you my livestock to oversee You'll have the choicest of of livestock. You'll be able to live well and thrive. How could this possibly happen? Well, the same way it happened for Joseph earlier in the narratives. It reminds us of what happens when the Lord is, is with his people. It reminds us of what happened with Joseph in Potiphar's house, Joseph in the prison, Joseph before Pharaoh. Despite being beaten and sold into slavery, God raises up Joseph's ranks until he's eventually over Pharaoh's household. So that, despite being guilty of beating Joseph, and despite being guilty of selling him into slavery, God can now mercifully raise up Israel's house in Egypt. And here we see a reminder of one of the main points of last week's text. God works all things together for the good of his people in Egypt, and for Egypt, even for Egypt. We see that one of the purposes of God's preserving of Israel, that they might live and not die is that the nations might be blessed through them. Look at what happens at the end of this section. So Joseph, verse 7, Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years, few and evil. Comparatively. Relatively, right? 130 years don't sound like few years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the day of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Two quick observations. First, by acknowledging that his days were few and evil, Jacob's actually addressing the problem. Like he's addressing why there's death that has to be overcome to begin, to, to begin with. He's addressing his own sin. The late great John Salheimer says, his words, Jacob's words appear to be a deliberate contrast to the later promise in Deuteronomy to the one who honors his father and mother, that he will live long and, go well, and it will go well in the land with him. Jacob, who deceived his father and thereby gained his blessing, must not only die outside of the land, but leads a relatively short life comprised of difficult years. From his own words, we see a final recompense for Jacob's earlier actions. Abraham obeyed God and lived long in the land, 26 verse 5. But Jacob's years are short and difficult. In spite of this final verdict on his life, the narrative goes on to show that he lives out the remaining years in the good of the land, verse 11. And Joseph, his son, provides for him and for his household. So, the last two verses of this section, which we're not going to read, but verses 11 and 12, if you look there, actually put the mercies of God on full display. Because while Jacob and his sons deserved death, and while they certainly faced the consequences of sin, and we see that in what Jacob says, that his life was few, and his years were, his years were few, and his life was difficult. So, while they certainly faced the consequences of sin, God was at work preserving their life. And as we see in verses 11 and 12, he was merciful in allowing them to live well in Goshen. And it's from that position then of being shown God's mercy and receiving God's blessing that now Jacob is able to bless, show mercy to Pharaoh by blessing him. Both before and after he makes this remark about his years being few and evil. The text says he blessed Pharaoh as he entered in. He blessed Pharaoh as he entered out. It brings us back to the promise that God made Abraham, that I will bless those who bless you. And in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God is at work in the narrative ensuring that Israel may live and not die. In part because through Israel, through that life that's to come, God intends to bless all the nations. And so relatedly we now see he's at work in the narrative ensuring that Egypt may live and not die. We see this in verses 13 through 27. And we don't really have time to work through those verses in detail or read them together in detail. I would ask you to set your eyes there as we look through this together. This is why we have the text read uh, prior to preaching through it. But we see here that the narrative now changes scenes. After this long hiatus in which the story centered on Joseph's brothers, right, and their return to Egypt, it kind of picked up with this interchange between the brothers and this reuniting, this eventual reuniting with Joseph, and then the father's reuniting with him. Now it actually gets back to the story that was left off in chapter 41 when Joseph was over the household of Pharaoh, and the brothers won't really be back again until chapters 49 and 50. It centers the story no longer on the brothers, but on Joseph, okay, and Egypt. But why does the author do this? Why does he keep going back and forth between Israel, Egypt, Egypt? Israel, Egypt. Like, what is Egypt's response to Joseph here in 47? What does that have to do with the story? Well, I think, at least part of the answer is because God is mirroring this activity in Egypt with his activity, in his activity with Israel. Okay, in other words, throughout these narratives, the author repeatedly brings out this theme, that Joseph's wisdom saves lives. Joseph's wisdom saves the lives of his father, and brothers, But it's not actually because of Joseph's wisdom, right? We remember this. It's because, as Joseph keeps telling everyone, he told everyone in prison, he told Pharaoh, his wisdom is only found in the Lord, right? He peels back, he says, this is not for me. Look, this is not me. This comes from the Lord. It's only because of God that he has access to it. This is what Salheimer and pretty much every other commentary means when they say that Joseph's narratives as a whole are fashioned after the events of the garden, almost a reverse of it. Because rather than seeking to find true wisdom outside of God, as Adam and Eve do, right? we remember from Advent of 2019 uh, in Genesis 3 that Eve was on a quest for wisdom outside of God, to try to find wisdom within herself, to try to make herself superior to God, right? Okay? We see that quest from Adam and Eve. As opposed to that, Joseph claims that the only real wisdom is from the Lord. Right? Adam and Eve were given wisdom in the Lord. They wanted it in themselves. Joseph says, no. The only wisdom is from the Lord, and any wisdom he does have comes through him. And that wisdom saves the life, saves the lives of his father and brothers. It's a saving wisdom. So at the beginning of the story, Jacob tells his sons, go down to Egypt to buy grain that we may live and not die. And Because God moved Joseph to Egypt, what happens? They live and not die, right? Judah then, in the second year, tells his father, let us go back to Egypt... That we may live and not die. And then finally, when Joseph reveals his identity, he tells him, Yeah, God put me here to save many people alive. So the author continues with that theme here in 47 in Egypt. When he opens with the Egyptians coming before Joseph and they're seeking to buy grain from him. And they ask, why should we die before your eyes? So Joseph says, okay, you don't have any money. Give me your livestock and we'll give you food. So then, this is similar to the brothers, the food runs out. They come back again in the second year, just like Judah, right? So in the second year, they come back again in verses 18 and 19. They say, why should we die before your eyes? And they say, give us food that we may live and not die. Just like Jacob and Judah. And then through the wisdom of Joseph, these people are saved. Just like through the wisdom of Joseph, Jacob and his sons were saved. Why, does, why is the narrative doing this? Why is the narrative about what's going on in Egypt mirrored with what's happening to Jacob and Judah. Here's why. Listen, listen, listen. Because the author wants us to know that the same wisdom that stands as the source of salvation and life for Israel is the same wisdom that stands as the only source of salvation and life for Egypt. It's the same, right? It's not like this is the God of Israel and Egypt's got to figure this out for themselves. Just as Joseph tells his family in 45, God sent me before you to preserve life and keep alive many survivors or save many people alive. So we've seen God at work in the narrative, ensuring that Israel may live and not die. Through that, ensuring that Egypt may live and not die. And so Egypt now comes and cries out in verse 25, what do they say? You have saved our lives. They say to to Joseph. And now finally we see that through all of this, where does it point us? What's the purpose of this? Well, it shows us the reality that he's at work in, in the narrative. God is at work in the narrative. Pointing forward to the hope that even after death we might live. Points forward to the hope that even after death we might live. Starting in verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob... The years of his life were 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If I now have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. Brings us back to Abraham making a covenant with his servant to find his son a wife, right? The way of making a covenant with one another. If I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So you have these, you have all these narratives, right? Whose focus is God saving many people alive. And and preserving life and preserving life and preserving life. All of this transpiring that people might live and not die. And then it ends here with preparations for an inevitable death. Like, they're all going to eventually die. Jacob's going to die. And his only request in death is that he's not buried in Egypt, but rather he's buried in the land of promise. I think, I think to a lot of readers, even readers who've been Christian for a long time, you know, who are pretty aware of what the Bible says, I think... For a, lot, for a lot of us, this can seem odd. He'll be dead. What does it matter where he's buried, in Egypt or in the land of promise? It kind of reminds us of Abraham's purchase of a parcel of land to bury his wife Sarah. What does it matter if Sarah is buried in the land of promise? What does it matter if Abraham owns the land or if someone loaned it to him for the burial? Here's why it matters. It matters because it's a signal of their future hope. It's a signal about their faith in what's to come in the end. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 37, which by the way if you if you look in Ezekiel 37, the prophet mentions Joseph and Judah and Jacob. But in Ezekiel 37 we read about this valley of the dry bones. In which Ezekiel sees this vision of the valley of the dry bones and the bones come alive. They come alive. And here we see the hope that's embedded in this symbol given full expression. Oh my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you into the land of Israel and you will live. How will God do this? How will God... Make dry bones come alive again. Right after this vision of the valley of dry bones, the prophet tells us, My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children And their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. In other words, one would come from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, who would make a way for his people to dwell forever with him and in him, that they might have life even after they die. That their bones might come alive again and start dancing, you know? Given that these bones all deserve to be lifeless, the only means that this can happen is if this royal promised seed is God himself come into human history to save, taking the death that his people deserve so that we might attain the life that he offers us. That through his work we might live and not die. We might have life that starts now and that begins a transformation now in which he gives us new hearts, new desires. And we come alive again. And that life continues on through all eternity. Jesus died on the cross bearing our death that we might have life. He came alive again, defeating the grave, defeating death, that we might have life in him, see our future hope, that even after death, death will not finally claim us. We'll be raised to glory. And this is what we proclaim at the Lord's table.